Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hidden Histories. For today's podcast, I met up with the classicist Daisy Dunn at the London Mithraeum. The Mithraeum is also known as the Temple of Mithras. It's a Roman Mithraeum that was discovered in Walbrook, which is a street in the city of London, during a building's construction in 1954. Today, it is underneath the Bloomberg building and serves as the most amazing example of Roman London. Daisy is going to talk to me all about the Mithraeum, some of the remarkable artefacts that were found there, and also a little bit about Roman London and also Roman Britannia. I hope you enjoy the podcast. 
Daisy Dunn, welcome to Hidden Histories. Hello. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I have been meaning to get you on the podcast for so long because you are a prolific writer and classicist. And we have been fortunate enough to come to the most amazing destination of ancient London, the Mithraeum. Can you explain to me exactly what what is a Mithraeum? Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, Mithraeum is a temple for Mithraism. And Mithraism is a secret or sort of mystery cult. Um, and it sort of flourished across the Roman Empire from about the 1st to the 4th centuries AD. And really you find Mithraism, um, this very, very sort of peculiar cult, um, everywhere from Turkey to North Africa, Germany, Rome, um, and Britain, uh, where we are now. And um, sort of mystery really is the key word. Um, we don't know a lot about um, what members of this cult were doing and sort of what Mithraism was really about. Um, we know there was a god, a Persian god, called Mitra, and he was uh, worshipped in the Near East, Near East um, from about 1300 BC. And he seems to have presided over um, contracts and agreements uh, and things like that. But there isn't really much evidence of a link between that god Mitra and the Mo- Roman Mithras. Um, so the sort of thinking at the moment is that Mithraism, Roman Mithraism, developed either in Rome or in nearby Ostia and sort of developed from there. So today, the Mithraeum is bang smack in the centre of the City of London. So it is underneath the Bloomberg building. So you couldn't really have two worlds further apart. You have innovation and technology and this brand spanking new building. And then you have ancient history right underneath it. Why do you think that it was originally built here? Well, the Mithraeum, as you say, is sort of in the basement. It's about seven metres underground, this great uh, Bloomberg building. Um, But this was actually the heart of Roman London. Um, And when we talk about Roman London, we're really talking about the city of London as we see it today. So where we're sitting right now, we're quite near Mansion House. We're near, um, relatively near St Paul's, Blackfriars. Um, Key point is we're near the Thames and we're also near um, what was a river called the River Woolbrook, which flowed into the Thames. And that's sort of now sort of seen as a, a lost river of London. It's a subterranean river. Um, but the Mithraeum was built on the east bank of this Woolbrook. And the Woolbrook is really the sort of the centre of uh, Roman life uh, when, when they sort of settled here uh, in the 40s AD. So it was uh, an important place, an important place for trade. People were passing by a lot. So I think that was probably why it was built uh, where it was. Okay, so it was an incredible discovery in its time, wasn't it? And exactly how was it discovered and what was found? Well, it's interesting. Um, This area, obviously quite near to St Paul's, um, was really hit very, very badly in the Second World War during the Blitz. Um, And it was in the period after the war when people were looking to uh, rebuild, um, sort of excavate, what was found here, all the rubble and everything else, that they actually uncovered uh, the outline of a rectangular building with an apse at one end, almost like you see in a, in a modern church. Um, and they weren't initially sure what this building was. Um, and they 
sort of, I think they were towards the end of excavating it, and it was in 1954, and they uncovered uh, a sculptural head, and this head had quite prominent features. For a start, it was wearing a hat, and this hat was a key that this was the god Mithras, because Mithras is usually shown wearing a sort of slightly pointy hat, which bends down almost like a Father Christmas cap. And he's looking up towards the sun. I mean, Mithras is shown in different guises. The most typical one is shown, um, he's shown slaughtering a bull, uh, often with other animals helping him. So if you see a dog and you see uh, a scorpion uh, sort of attacking this dying beast. Um, and the thinking is that probably this had some belief, uh, sort of linked to the belief in um, sort of the blood giving sort of new life, we think. I mean, we, certainly with a lot of Greek mythology, you have a lot of very violent stories being used as sort of origin tales in the beginning of the cosmos and the beginning of things like that. So we think that perhaps with Mithraism, um, the slaughtering of the bull was thought to, in some way, to sort of give give rise to sort of new 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 life. And sort of tying in with that, um, this particular sculptural head, I think he was shown looking up towards the sun, and the god Mithras is sort of linked with soul. Uh, the sun god and often sort of shown dining together actually on a table laid with the hide of the bull that's been slaughtered so this is very obviously the head of Mithras the god and it was at that time they realised we found uh, a Mithraeum Um, the only problem is that this area had already been laid aside for rebuilding and it was decided it was just very very inconvenient where this temple was so they decided um, to dig the whole thing up and relocate it um, just down the road rebuild it and almost immediately, this was um, quite severely criticised. I think it was in the early 1960s it was laid down, and the building was seen immediately as being inaccurate. Um, they didn't use sort of authentic materials. They brought in a load of, sort of more modern materials to um, complete it. Um, so it's only actually recently that it's actually been relocated back to its original place, where it was found, which is under the Greenberg building. It's been done a lot more sympathetically. Oh, that's amazing that it's finally back where it belongs. Um, okay, so London was at this time obviously becoming quite a big commercial centre in uh, in Rome and Britannia. Um, what exactly can the Mithraeum and you know the in this area in particular tell us about Rome and London? Um, I think the Mithraeum gives us a window into quite a small. Um, group of people. I mean, for a start, we know that members of the cult were all men, and we've got the inscriptions that are all male names, and they tend to be sort of soldiers, merchants, tax collectors, um, sort of former slaves of the emperor. And I think it was a strange sort of little group, and I think, you know, it's probably not representative of, of Londinium uh, as a whole, the men who are engaged in sort of in, in this cult and, and going there. I mean, we know for example, that people um, who sort of wanted to join this cult had to undergo a number of very sort of bizarre rituals. For example, they'd sort of kneel down in the temple um, blindfolded while another member of the cult approached them with a sword or sort of pretended to fire arrows at them. And so I think there's a lot of bravado involved in sort of joining um, this cult. And I think, you know, so that is probably not a sort of typical picture of, of, of London as a whole. I think... London, we really have to go back, I think, to the origins of London to really understand um, why it was became a sort of important place. Um, the Emperor Claudius uh, launched his uh, invasion of Britain in AD 43 in the summer. 
and in, in fact it sort of took decades really to sort of conquer Britain um, but he really set that process in motion and that sort of followed two failed or un- rather unsuccessful landings under Julius Caesar back in the 50s BC and Londinium really develops about five years after Claudius's invasion so about AD 47 to 48 um, and I think from the beginning it's seen as a sort of important trade um, centre sort of an admin- administrative and trade centre whereas sort of um, Colchester uh, was seen as sort of the original capital um, and so Londinium was almost like an afterthought but developed into sort of a more important uh, place in its own respect. Okay so um, in the overall landscape of Britannia London wasn't initially as as uh, affluent as important why do you think that it developed to be that? I think the key lay um, in its trade. So if you look at um, Tacitus, the great Roman historian, he describes uh, London as being uh, very bustling and busy as a result of the businesses uh, which were here. And um, we've got evidence that uh, that they were importing goods from uh, the Roman Empire. So they're importing, for example, uh, wine from Gaul, um, olive oil and fish sauce from Spain. And it's very possible, I mean, Tacitus said that one good thing he said about Britain is that it's very rich in metals um, and there's a possibility that maybe some of these metals are being exported as well. So I think um, it's sort of its, its position was really key to uh, its success. And I think you know, it, there was probably a, a very diverse group of people who were living here. I mean, one thing they found, this, this River Walbrook, um, even though we can't see it today, it meant that the ground is very, very damp and it's managed to sort of preserve uh, a lot of Roman finds in this area. And I think it's one of the most exciting things uh, to come out of this um, in the Bloomberg area, in fact. Are, there are over 400 uh, wooden backs of wax tablets. So the Romans used to um, inscribe uh, wax tablets, and these wax, the sort of wax has now disappeared, um, but they used to use a sort of uh, a stylus, so a sort of sharp tool, and uh, they sort of left an impression on the wooden backing uh, of these tablets. And people managed to decipher these. And they show sort of a huge range of professions of people who are living here. So, for example, we find reference to a brewer in the first century. So we have a good indication that beer was being produced uh, in London in the first century. Um, and also sort of further examples of trade. So I think the earliest tablet dates to January 57 uh, AD, and I think it's one of the earliest uh, examples of a written record. Um, and it sort of records that one former slave owes another former slave for sort of goods. So it's another example of, of sort of you know, burgeoning trade uh, at this time. So London was more of a commercial centre and um, a domestic dwelling rather than necessarily a garrison. Yeah, I mean, I think with London, the idea when the Romans came over, we don't see it as as being sort of as um, beautiful as Rome itself. I mean, I think the difficulty with with London is is, it sort of goes through quite a sort of a lot of vicissitudes in its history. So you have this invasion um, and the Romans start to build uh, buildings initially of wood and then gradually they're replaced by stronger stone buildings. Um, They even throw a bridge across very, very close to where um, Tower Bridge is. Sorry, London Bridge today. Um, they sort of bridged the Thames. Um, but then you have um, the, uh, the rising of Boudicca. And this kind of throws, sort of sets them back um, a bit. Um, so with Boudicca, you have uh, sort of her husband, um, 
died and he left uh, his two daughters and the Roman Emperor as his heirs. And then the Romans really use this as an excuse to be very, very heavy-handed and Tacitus says that they flogged his widow Boudicca and he raped the daughters and so she uh, launched this great rebellion. Um, and as a result of this, London, um, other places, St Albans, um, Colchester, they were all suffered horrible, terrible fires and a lot of shops and storerooms in London were completely destroyed. So a drastic sort of radical rebuild um, had to take place and this did happen. So I think within about a decade of that rebellion you see um, a new forum uh, coming to to London and we sort of got evidence of this sort of forum basilica uh, complex um, near Gracechurch Street, uh, not far from where we are now. Um, a similar kind of time um, under Guildhall Yard, we've got uh, a Roman amphitheatre sort of for staging gladiatorial contests and uh, sort of uh, killings of, of criminals and, and you know, terrible, terrible things like that. Um, and then uh, sort of a lot later, around sort of 200, you see them sort of laying sort of more defensive uh, fortifications. So you, you have this great wall being built around London and sort of from about Tower Hill to Blackfriars and sort of encompasses about a two-mile area of London. And I think that's not necessarily simply defensive. It's showing sort of a great deal of pride um, in London, I think. Wow, that's amazing. And it's amazing to think that there are areas of London that still exist that are beneath, you know, where we're standing. And there's just, there's so much that I feel that um, is to be explored, whether that's Sort of archaeologically or through more um, archival research that, that, like like you do. Um, okay, so where else in London do you think gives a really good example of the Romans? Um, I think well, this is the very this is the, the important area. So I think if you go to where the Museum of London is today, you can actually see um, a lot of the objects which have been uncovered from the Woolbrick area and from sort of inside uh, the Roman walls. Um, and I think this is where you sort of really understand London best because you're looking at it through its details. So you need to sort of, I think it's very, very easy to say, oh, well, Roman London is a bit of a backwater by comparison to sort of other cities across the Roman Empire. Um, but if you look at some of these smaller finds, you can see sort of little amulets and there's a, there's a wonderful, almost like a bead, um, showing a gladiatorial mask. And you look at objects and then you think actually there was a lot of skill and sort of fine craftsmanship here. And I think that gives you a sort of a different view of, of, of the place. And I do saw recently in the news um, there's been a discussion of one of these uh, stylus things, that they, like a Roman pen that they used to sort of in, inscribe these Roman tablets, was actually inscribed with a message. Um, and it seems to have said, I came from the city. And the city obviously is Rome. Um, so I think looking at the sort of smaller objects, especially those in the Museum of London, you can really understand you know, what, why London was special. And what happened after the Romans left? How, I mean, what happened around the time they left? What instigated that leave? And how did London change? It's really difficult to say. We've got, um, I think the Mithraean gives us a sort of an indication of, of what happens um, sort of by the 4th century the Mithraean. Um, it seems to sort of stop functioning as um, a temple of that cult. And there's some indication that it turned into a temple to Bacchus, the great wine god, instead. 
Um, but that was relatively short-lived. And by the 5th century, it's pretty much abandoned. And this is kind of true of London. It's, it sort of ceases to be a major Roman centre um, by that date. Um, and that kind of... It, it's a reflection of what's going on with the Roman Empire um, itself at that date. Um, and it's, I mean, it's sad. I mean, I think a lot of what they've achieved and what they've built is just abandoned. It's left to grow over. Um, and it's not really until the Anglo-Saxons that it starts to sort of be revived. Um, so it's quite a sad story at the end, I think. We're very familiar with um, the appearance of ancient Rome as that stands today. Do you think that there are any areas of that that are probably reflective of what London may have looked like during this period? I think there's nothing like the Colosseum or... Um, Trajan's Column or any of these great monuments. Um, I'd say it's a lot more... It's something that, that develops, I think, over time. So I think when you... if you, It's depending on when you were here. So if you're standing here in the first century, you're seeing sort of gradually all these sort of wooden buildings being replaced by wooden ones, and it's a bit sort of... Um, I wouldn't say it's not a sort of glamorous place. Um, but I think gradually it turns... I think having an amphitheatre, a major amphitheatre in it, would, it sort of gives us a real indication, actually, of what the people believed in as well, and it gives us a sort of indication that they were interested in the same sort of entertainments as the people in Rome. You know, there must have been a sort of real appetite for gladiatorial combat. And also, I mean, it's really, really sort of bloody when you look into the history of this. It actually puts sort of the heads of, of criminals and on mistakes and things outside as a sort of deterrent to other would-be criminals. Um, so it's, I think it, it gives us an indication that the people were probably not dissimilar to the people who were living in Rome, but sort of architecturally I'd say they're very different. Okay, um, so this has been very much focused around London because we're talking about the Mithraeum, but where would you recommend people go to around not just, not just London, maybe the localised area or even further beyond within the country to really get an understanding of what Rome, what Britannia was like? I think it would be really interesting to visit um, a lot of the sort of larger Roman villas which give you a sort of a much better indication of the sort of grandeur that was possible. So if you go down to Fishbourne Roman Villa, um, that's a fantastic one. Um, Lullingstone, another one. Um, and then also some of the key Roman towns. I, I love Sirencester. I mean, there's a fantastic museum there which shows you so many of the finds, um, beautiful mosaics, um, beautiful relief sculptures. Um, Colchester, again, uh, key, key Roman place. But sort of, I think what's really interesting is if you go anywhere um, around the sort of British Isles now, you're, you're bound to see something, whether it's in a museum or whether it's actually on the grounds of Richborough and Kent, another great place. Because I, I could sort of read off <laughs> probably about 100 different places, but I think just always look out. This is what I do whenever I travel anywhere. I always look, have a look to see, is there anything Roman nearby? And I'll sort of make a beeline to go and see it. Are there any sort of sneaky little signs of, um, of the Roman occupation in, in Britain? Um, I think often a, a key sign is when you look at yeah, the roads, and the Romans like to build their roads on a very sturdy sort of grid system. Um, and when you see that, either here or sort of abroad and sort of throughout Italy, often you, you, they're still sort of preserved. You see these sort of key um, artery roads um, crossing over each other. And that's often sort of the first, first sign. 
Because we still use them today, don't we? We do. A lot of Roman roads are still are still there. Um, and, I mean, they're fantastic builders and engineers. And I think, particularly so with one thing I was looking into, I was writing a book recently, into the sort of the strength of Roman concrete. I mean, so the reasoning is, I mean, there must be some sort of science behind the fact that so much has been preserved from Roman times. Um, and a sort of group of scientists looked into the fact that um, Roman concrete, particularly concrete which is built for harbours, for example, underwater, why is it so strong? Why hasn't it eroded over time? And they found that the Romans use this very, very particular recipe for building things. And they sort of combined um, volcanic dust, typically, with um, lime and water. And they found that when these actually combined and were submerged in seawater, they actually got stronger over time. And we hadn't really realised this before, but obviously the Romans had that sort of foresight to, to do that. So I think they were complete geniuses when it came to all kinds of building. So we've been talking about Britannia, but you have recently been very focused on Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius, haven't you? What have you been working on and how, people, how can people learn more about it? Um, well, I recently published a book about the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79. So it was this devastating eruption uh, which covered Pompeii, Herculaneum, sort of much of the Bay of Naples. And I was looking at that through the eyes of Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger, you know, two men who were caught up in this disaster. Uh, so I wrote a book called uh, In the Shadow of Vesuvius, um, A Life of Pliny, about that disaster. Um, and then I've been working on an anthology uh, of ancient stories because, like, one of the things that really drew me to the subject in the first place were all the myths and all the sort of the wonderful myths and legends and stories that you sort of get uh, from Homer to Euripides to Ovid to anyone else. So I've sort of assembled an anthology of uh, all these different tales told by different people. So. So many people from Elizabeth I to Robert Graves to Ted Hughes have translated them. So I sort of assembled a, a nice sort of compilation uh, of these stories. I think that sounds absolutely amazing. And I really can't wait to get my hands actually on, on a copy of that because I think like everybody who is going to be listening to this podcast, there is something really magical about those myths and legends and they have endured and they are told, you know, from early, early childhood. So... I'm, I'm actually super jealous that you put that together because I think that must have just been so fascinating. Um, Daisy, where can people find you? Obviously, your books are now available uh, in all good bookshops and online. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I occasionally tweet. I've been known to tweet at Daisy F. Dunn. And do you have a website? I do have a website, www.daisydunn.co.uk. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on Hidden Histories. And God, I'd love to get you back just to talk about all those fabulous myths and legends. But thank you and see you again soon. Thank you. It's a date.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 